0: And the way I learned that was, is uh, I was sitting and I hadn't been baptized uh, for very long, and I was coming out of a, of a Bible class that was held in an auditorium at uh, the Forest Park Church of Christ down on the south side. And I heard one of the people walk past me and said, "I didn't get a thing out of that lesson." And I thought one way to pre- one sure way to prevent that anybody ever saying that is to give them a handout. So at least they got some paper to walk out with. They can't say, I didn't, I didn't get a thing out of Jim's lesson. So you get a handout. Uh, this class may be in the auditorium, but it is not an auditorium lecture class like we usually have in here. Uh, because if it is, it's going to last about 15 minutes. Okay. So I'm going to need your participation in this. And you'll see from the handout, we've got some fill in the blanks and other things to talk about. Uh, to get our point across with this. Uh, And it's about uh, the wilderness of excuses. And I think tomorrow night's the wilderness of complaints. So we're going to look at things uh, uh, from that kind of perspective. Preparing this lesson on excuses was, you couldn't help but be introspective in this, which made me a little uncomfortable because it brings out the things (laughs) that we tend to do as human beings or as Christians. We make excuses, don't we, at times, for things that, uh, that we probably shouldn't do. So we're going to talk about that. And the example that uh, they chose to use for this lesson is uh, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 through chapter 4, verse 17. But you might want to just go to 3.10 because that's basically where we're going to start. Uh, we're all familiar with uh, the story there. It's uh, Moses and the burning bush and God talking to him. Uh, we're all familiar with it, but when you, you get assigned to teach it, you start digging deeper and deeper, which is a, a real blessing to be able to do that. But uh, it did bring up some introspection on uh, excuses that I've used in the past about, uh, about different things that Christians do. So uh, we're going to hone in on that and talk about that a little bit uh, with your input. Uh, just as, a, uh, as an introduction, The North Point Church of Christ is in Taylorsville, Kentucky. It's an eastern suburb of of Louisville. And when we were up there for the Lads convention uh, in April, uh, we have a son that lives uh, near Taylorsville out that way. So we decided to stay with him uh, Sunday night rather than coming back home uh, uh, from the convention. And they had just built a church building. The North Point Church of Christ had just built a church building five minutes from our son's house. They had just opened it. It was a, a metal type building, uh, it had concrete floors and uh, I don't think it had any insulation up yet. So they didn't finished the parking lot, but uh, uh, I don't think it was a new church. They probably had uh, 150, 175 people there. And so uh, we said, let's just, let's go there. And it was Easter morning. So we did and folks were friendly. Uh, uh, it seemed like a good congregation. And the preacher was, a, uh, he was one of the elders and he started out with a little story. And I thought, well, that's just what Kyle does every week. You know, he comes up with a little story or a quip to kind of introduce the lesson. So uh, I assumed that that's what uh, what this preacher was doing. And the way it started off is that there was this couple in the United States uh, and the husband's mother-in-law lived with him and she was constantly, uh, bugging her son-in-law to take her to the promised land, to Israel, before she died. It was on her bucket list, day after day after day. He didn't want to go, but she just kept hounding him. So finally one day he relented and said, okay, okay, uh, we'll take you, to the, take you to Israel. So they planned it, went over there, and while she was there, the mother-in-law died. So, they took her uh, from the hospital to the mortuary, and the funeral director met with the the couple. And he said, well, he said, we can bury her here in Israel for like $500. She'll get to to spend uh, eternity here in the uh, promised land. Uh, It'll be a great honor. Or, if you want her shipped back to the United States, gonna run you about $10,000 or better. And the son-in-law quickly said, ship her back to the United States. And the funeral director was a little, little concerned. He said, well, sir, what, you know, that's an awful lot of money. Wouldn't you prefer to have her, have her here in Israel? He said, about 2,000 years ago, didn't you have someone die and and they were re- and, and they came back to life three days later. And the mortuary director said, well, yes. He said, I can't take that chance, ship her back. <laughs> well, I let out a yelp, because he caught me way off guard. Well, it was concrete floors with no insulation in a metal building. My yelp just reverberated around that congregation. And uh, Rosalinda hit me in the ribs, and, told me to be quiet and act my age and that kind of things. Uh, but it was interesting and he had a real good lesson on the, on the resurrection. Uh, spiritual wellness, I got this out of Google so I don't take any credit for this or blame. Uh, give you an idea of kind of uh, what we're talking about here. It allows us to see the sinfulness of our hearts so God can change us. It's a painful path of learning the error of our ways while seeing the beauty of walking in God's ways. God often often withdraws blessings, including his felt presence. We're gonna look at Exodus, I mentioned that. And God was talking to Moses in the burning bush. What was God's call to Moses? What did he want him to do? I know you know that. <laughs> he wanted him to come back to Israel and do what? Free, free the folks from, uh, from the oppression from the Egyptians, right? To say that Moses was willingly accepted God's call would be a gross misstatement, wouldn't it? Why do you think Moses had a very negative attitude toward God's call. What was Moses' last experience in Israel, and how long ago was it at at the time he was called? Forty years he had been in the wilderness. Under what circumstances did he leave Egypt? It wasn't good, was it? He was chased out, basically, and ran for his life. Spent 40 years, and now suddenly, from a burning bush that doesn't disintegrate, God is calling him to go back. Moses' first excuse, or we we'll call it a response, to God's call, I gave you some letters there to help you out. What did he say? We're getting to that one. We're getting to that one. We're going to take them in order here. What's the first one? Who am I? Who am I? Now, was that a rhetorical question, or was, was he at, what was, what was, his, what was Moses' point in, 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 in that kind of response or excuse to God's call? I'm a nobody. I'm not qualified to do that. God's response was what? I will be with you. I'll be with you, Moses. We'll go together, in a sense. Moses didn't accept that, did he? He had a second excuse. What did he ask God? Who are you? What did he mean by that? think <laughs> he? Okay. What he wanted to know was, what shall I call you when I go back and talk to the Israelites? What do I refer to you as? And God said what? I am who I am. What does that mean? I am who I am. (laughs) Well, now we got two of us wondering, so I want some answers here. Okay. That almost sounds arrogant, doesn't it? I am who I am. But what's that say about God? That kind of answer. One of the commentaries I looked at said it's the God is the essence of being. Sounds like a philosophy class, doesn't it? Uh, uh, The essence of being. Eternal. What's the difference between someone being eternal and someone being immortal? Or is there a difference? Eternal means what? No beginning, no end. That's God, right? How about immortal? You have a beginning, but That's us, right? That's us. We had a beginning, but our soul is what? Immortal. It's going to live forever, somewhere. Moses' third excuse or response. What is it? They will not believe me. Who's the they? The Israelites. Not Pharaoh. He wasn't concerned so much about Pharaoh. He was concerned about the Israelites accepting him as the leader of this this, uh, breakout uh, from the oppression from the Egyptians. He said, they won't believe me. And God's response, this may be tough, tough for you. Miracles. First one was what? He said, you've got that staff in your hand. He told him to throw it on the ground, and what happened? Turned into a a serpent, didn't it, or a snake. And then what happened? Turned back into a staff, didn't it? And then the next miracle was what? He said, put your hand to your chest. He did, and what happened to Moses' hand? It became leprous, didn't it? And then he told him to remove his hand. And it turned back to normal again. And then the third one, and that's the one that's most interesting. You remember what that one was? Water to blood. But especially, where would the water come from? The river Nile. Now, there's two things different about the third miracle that don't apply to the first two. The first was that he never turned the blood back to water. Why is that important? Is there a message there? What was the significance of the Nile River for the Egyptians? Loud. It was the life, the economic life of Egypt. It did everything. It irrigated, it provided food, but God did not turn the blood back to water. Interesting. Moses still did not accept and trust in God. The fourth response. He said, "What? I am not." No, the God's calling and called him back, and said. um, He said, "I am not eloquent." Eloquent simply means what? You're a good talker, aren't you? <laughs> You're eloquent. Your speech is is uh, uh, understandable. It's it's uh, it's informed. And I saw in this fourth and then the fifth response that what has been God's response up to this point for Moses's excuses? God has been patient. He's provided answers to to hopefully uh, calm Moses down and, and, and build up his faith and confidence. But now his response to this one, I noticed a change in tone. What was God's answer? It was in the form of a rhetorical question. Who made your mouth? What point was he making there? Louder. He will provide you with what you need to say and how you need to say it. Does that remind you, if you read there, what he said, your mouth, and then he goes in to say a little bit more about... uh, uh, about what he made, what God made Moses, how he created him with, with these uh, capabilities. Does that remind you of any other discussion that God had with someone? It did me when I first read it. Do you remember how God talked to Job when Job questioned how he was being treated or how, how things were going against him? I always thought God was pretty rough on on Job. You know, He let Him know real quick that who He was and, and where the pecking order was on that. And I kind of see this here as God's starting to run out of patience uh, with the, with Moses here. And even on that, even through this these uh, excuses and this questioning God for four different four different uh, four different times. Moses comes back a fifth time. After hearing all this, he said what to God? Send someone else. What was, how does it state, if you're looking at your scriptures, what was God's frame of mind when, he's, when he heard that, that fifth excuse? What kind of anger? <laughs> A burning anger. In spite of that burning anger, what did God, what was God's action in that last, that fifth excuse? Absolutely. But what did he say he was going to do for that? Same when he said, send someone else. I'll send Aaron. Aaron will speak your words for you. Even though, and it struck me odd, there seemed to be a disconnect there that God was burning with anger, but then he turned around and said, I'll send Aaron. I'll tell you what to say, you tell Aaron what to say, Aaron will speak, Aaron is eloquent. We'll get back to that one. Why did Moses hide his face when he realized that God was speaking to him from the burning bush in Exodus thirty-three twenty? 20? When he first realized that that was God that was, was talking to him, why did he hide his face? Exodus 33:20 says, "You cannot see my face, for no man can see me, and what? Live. No one can see the face of God and live." Moses remembered that, and he turned his face away from God when he realized who was speaking. What kind of fear was that that Moses had? Do you think?: Yes, yes, I do. I think fear of failure was a, was a big part of the problem. Hopefully for Moses, it was a godly fear. Are we to fear God today? In what way way is it? Is it not a godly fear or a fatherly fear? And that's what hopefully Moses had. Do we have that today? Should we have that today? You wonder sometimes, and you see some of the things that... uh, That go on in the church, or or some of the members of the church, uh, and how faithful they are. Uh, Do they have that godly fear? And if not, why not? We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Why was Moses so hesitant about accepting God's call? What did he lack? I'm sorry I can't I have trouble here he was, he was Yes. He was fearful and he lacked what. Confidence. Confidence. He lacked faith, absolutely. He lacked faith in God. He lacked trust in God, which made him come up with excuses about why not to take this uh, this assignment, if you will, or this direction. He didn't have enough trust in God. He didn't have enough faith in God. Do you think that holds Christians back today? A lack of faith in God? A lack of trust in God? What's the passage? I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me. It's simple. It's not an I thing, is it? It's a we thing. Okay? That's the difference. It's a we thing. And we forget that, I think, uh, often as Christians. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And one of the, one of the commentaries mentioned that uh, that uh, people who have a uh, a very humble attitude about their capabilities often make the great leaders when they realize that it's it's a we thing, as opposed to someone who steps up and is very competent from the very beginning. And so there's a different uh, uh, basis for that uh, for that strength. So I think that's that's very true. Uh, but I did think about, and it's a passage I often think about, uh, with Goliath. We all know the story of that. Uh, all these, uh, these uh, warriors were terrified. Uh, no one would step up and challenge him. And uh, David walks up. Uh, he's come out of the, uh, uh, the fields from watching the sheep. And he's got some supplies for the soldiers. And he's, what, 13, 14 years old or something. And uh, he asks him, what's going on? <laughs> So Saul says, "Well, we got this nine-foot uh, Philistine over here. That you know, we're afraid. Any everybody's afraid to, to challenge the guy. What did? What was David's response?" I'll use the Whitmire translation of this. Who does that Philistine think he is? to challenge the armies of the living God, right? He was the, I can't imagine someone that big and that powerful, but can you imagine a 13 year old saying, who does he think he is, Saul? I don't want your, I don't want your swords, I don't want your shields, I don't want your, your, your other equipment, just give me a stone. Uh, where did he get that kind of confidence? coming from herding sheep. He knew it was a we thing, didn't he? Wasn't an I thing. Keep that in mind. I think that's, that's uh, certainly applicable today for that. Talked about what was reaction to uh, Moses' hesitancy. Uh, God was patient with him. He was humbling. He provided him uh, the answers he needed to, to uh, gain his strength, to, to become uh, more trustworthy of God. Why did God react in this manner? Fatherly love. Say he was burning with anger. I know there are other times that we we can think about when God was burning with anger, but He turned around and provided what Aaron ne- or what uh, what Moses needed in Aaron his brother. What did God do with Uzzah when He touched the ark? Struck him dead. What did he do with Nadab and Abihu when they brought the wrong fire? Burn them up. Ananias and Sapphira struck them dead. Why do you think that he was so, what apparently is, lenient with Moses? He was burning with anger and said, but I'll send Aaron with you. (laughs) That's true, with Anandas and Sapphira. What about us? If you're walking alongside a cart that has the Ark of the Covenant and it starts to tip over in the middle of the stream, what's going to be our natural reaction in an instant? (laughs) Right? We don't even think, do we? What's... When something's about to fall off the table, <laughs> we don't think. We just react, don't we? Good point. Good point. <laughs> okay. I think God was extremely patient. Do you remember uh, with your children or your parents? Did you get five excuses when they asked you to do, told you to do something? I never got that many from my father. He chased me out of the house one day with a dining room chair over his head. <laughs> because I had to, not necessarily intentionally, but he had run out of patience. <laughs> but God did not run out of patience. Um, Exodus 411, the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth or who makes him deaf or mute, excuse me, mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? The question, would God purposely make a child of his mute, deaf or blind? Would God do that purposely? Look at Job chapter 1, verses 21 and 22. And he said, this is Moses, or excuse me, uh, Job, Job talking. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You read in Amos 4, 6. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. What do you think that means? They didn't have dentists back then, so he wasn't in for his six month checkup. What's the one way back then you would have cleanness of teeth? You didn't have any food to eat. That's how. (laughs) They didn't have any food. He withheld food from them. He said, I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all places, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. At times, his people were unfaithful, uh, they were disobedient, they worshiped other gods and idols, especially through the period of the judges, what do we see in the, in the faithfulness? Just <laughs> They put a new judge up, that would last a while, they would become unfaithful again, God would punish them, and we kept going through that whole phase uh, until he finally uh, uh, gave them the king they wanted. Here's a statement that I read in one of the commentaries. Everything that happens to man is either caused or permitted by God. You agree with that? This guy's a PhD, but it doesn't make him right or wrong. But uh, is that not true in our lives? What's the application for us? I think that's what we want to take from this, and hopefully we'll we'll take that each night, is what can we learn from this to help us be more effective, more productive, more faithful Christians. When asked if Christians should put God first in our lives, we would answer resounding yes as a congregation, wouldn't we? But when it comes down to making and fulfilling personal commitments, we often find excuses, don't we? Rather than finding a way to step up, we, like Moses, look for an excuse to pass on the opportunity. I think about attendance. Live screaming is, is a blessing <laughs> in some ways In It can be a negative in others, can't it? I know during COVID, I always started to get used to sitting around in our pajamas with a cup of coffee on the sofa, watching the service. (laughs) Now I know, and we've done it occasionally. Well, I just don't feel like going this morning or tonight. We can watch it on, we can live stream it. It's just like being there. But it's not just like being there, is it? Why not? What are we missing? The fellowship. We're missing the fellowship, the building up of one another. That's not going to replace that. And we have to be careful that we don't use that excuse. Because who knows, in particular, when we're not with the herd? God knows, who else knows? Satan knows. Satan knows we're not with the herd. Sports, and I, I, I remember uh, when our children were little, soccer games always seemed to be on a Sunday morning And we had families that came Sunday night, but not Sunday morning during the season. That's probably happened to a lot of us, ourselves or our children or grandchildren. We have to make choices, don't we? We have to make choices. How about our giving? When we all go on vacation, does the church go on vacation too? Does, it, does all their, their expenses stop during the week we're on vacation? They don't, do they? But sometimes we forget that even though we're not there, we have an obligation to support this congregation financially. Involvement. We have a lot of activities in this congregation. A lot of uh, benevolent uh, involvement, uh, children's um, mission work. There's a place for everybody here. I know I came from a congregation of about 135, and it took me three or four months to get used to five, six, seven hundred people being in one place. But there's something for everybody personal evangelism. Most people don't do it because they don't believe what? Most Christians don't do it. Those that don't do it don't believe they have the knowledge to conduct personal evangelism. I didn't think so either back 30, 40 years ago when I went on my first mission trip to the Pacific Islands. What I found out was I had a lot more knowledge than I realized I had because I never have been challenged with it here. Suddenly I have people asking me questions left and right and most of the time I knew the answer. It changed my perspective on, on evangelism. Probably a lot of you have had uh, the young men in the, the white shirts and black ties come knocking at your door in twos. I've had four sets of them come over the years and we had several months of study with each one of them. And they couldn't answer a lot of the questions that I asked them about the scriptures. I don't know that I converted anybody, but hopefully we plant seeds, don't we? We plant seeds for folks to think about what they believe and is it, is it scriptural uh, with what they believe. Uh, I was fortunate that one of, the, one of them stopped by during COVID where we had the shutdown. And they said, well, you need to read the Book of Mormon. I said, I can't go anywhere. Oh, okay, I'll read it. You know what the font is on that? It's like two or three. It's like this, this small. It took me two or three months to read it, but I had a lot of time on my hands. It was an eye opener, not that it was anything that I needed to know but I could discuss it with them. And I asked the young men, I said, how long have you been doing this? And they said, well, a couple years. And I said, how many people, how many doors have you knocked on? And it was hundreds. And I said, how many people have, have actually read the, the Book of Mormon that you asked him?" He said, you're the first one. I said, well, let's talk about it, because I got a lot of questions for you. We have the knowledge. We just aren't tested. And when we are, we'll find out. We can handle it. Benevolence. We think people take advantage of us sometimes. Is that ever going to change? No. People are always going to, there's always going to be people out there taking advantage. We don't give to others because we know they're not going to take advantage of us. That's not why we give, is it? Why do we help those appear to be less fortunate? Because we're Christians, right? That's what we're commanded to do. Doesn't matter about the outcome, that's between them and God. What matters is, is that we do what God expects us to do, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Edification. Anybody here know all there is to know about God's word? Gene might be close, but <laughs> you know we're not. We're never going to come that close. Why should we ever stop trying to increase our knowledge? What's What's that doing for us as we continue to study God's word? Brings us closer to God, doesn't it? Brings us closer to God all the time. I think there's a country song about the uh, meeting in the middle. You start your way and I'll start mine and we'll, you know, we'll meet in the middle somewhere. What happens when we start drawing ourselves closer to God? What's he doing? He's drawing closer to us. What did the father do when he saw his, uh, his son start coming back over from the, From the lost land there he ran to him he ran to him he He didn't have to he could have waited for him to come he was coming that way he ran to him that's what God's going to do when we make the effort to draw closer to him he's going to run to us you know we lose 50 percent surveys have been done and I'm on the board of lads of leaders, we think about this a lot. We lose 50% of our children to the world, generation after generation. I would tell you if they're involved in lads the entire time they're in primary and secondary school, that percentage goes way down. But we lose 50% of our children. Take that out a couple generations, and you know what happens? The numbers just plummet. We got to educate them. We got to teach them, and we got to be examples for them. I'm afraid we uh, we have a priority problem sometimes, and it's subtle. Satan doesn't walk up to you like this and say, what's the rules of, of this engagement, is he? <laughs> he's sneaky, he's a liar, he hides. We have to be ready for that. It's a matter of priorities, isn't it? If you want to exercise regular, on a regular basis, you build your schedule around your exercise. If you want to be faithful to God, you build your secular life, what? Around your faithful service to God. You do the secular things when there's time to do it after you serve God. What should our motivation be for answering the call? to serve, to grow, to draw closer. What should our motivation be as Christians? Or motivations? What motivates us to do that? What should motivate us to do it as Christians? Okay. And you do that why? Okay. We're commanded to do that, aren't we? We are given examples to do that. So that's one reason. That's two reasons. Commands, examples. Are there other reasons that should motivate us? Because God loves us. Sure, that's a motivation. How often does he love us? All the time. You might find this hard to believe, but I'm not lovable all the time. Ask my wife, ask my kids. But God still loves us, doesn't he? And we're to do what? love for our neighbor, love for our fellow person, shouldn't that motivate us? There's one that I've become more and more uh, thoughtful of, another motivation, and that's gratitude. everybody know Michael J. Fox? What disease has he had for 30 years? Parkinson's disease. I read an article a year or two ago, I guess, one of those magazines they send you when you're like over 65, you know, one of those senior magazines. Uh, And it was was an interview with Michael J. Fox. And the interviewer asked him, how do you remain so positive? Parkinson's is killing you, (laughs) mind and body. You're getting weaker and weaker. How can you remain, how do you have that positive attitude? He said, gratitude makes optimism sustainable. That was his answer, four words. Gratitude makes optimism sustainable. And it hit me when I read that. Should that not motivate us as Christians? When I think about what Jesus did, what God did, the sacrifice he made, that he turned his back on his only son because he could not look at the sin that engulfed Jesus on the cross. I try to think of the the millions and billions of people who have been on this planet for 6,000 years. All that sin, past, present, and future on Christ's shoulders, on the on the cross. His own father could not look at him. This is, my, this is my, my personal motivating factor. I've read the Bible several times. I've taught a lot of different classes. And that motivates me but the gratitude for the sacrifice that was made inspires me to be optimistic not just about my future in heaven about everything i don't always succeed in that but it is my motivator I'm not doing things to build we do things to build up treasures in heaven But when your motivation is gratitude you're not paying back anything you're not trying to even the score what are we doing we're just trying to express our gratitude and love for what god has done for us whatever motivator it takes i hope that we can do that i would ask that you Be introspective and ask yourself, what is your primary motivator for serving and growing and being involved? And if you can identify one, focus on that every day. Saying, I can't wait to do this. I can't wait to teach or I can't wait to help. Uh, Of all the opportunities we have. and build our lives our schedule around our Christian responsibilities questions comments let's have a prayer heavenly father we come to you tonight uh, uh, thankful for the, for this week for this uh, vacation bible school and for the children we have father and the uh, uh, Father, we know that those children look to, to us as parents and relatives and, and um, other adult members of the congregation. They look to us, and they, and they, they mimic us. They, uh, they want to be like us. Father, help us to do uh, all we can to project that image of, uh, of, of gratitude for what we have, uh, the country we live in, and the freedoms we have, The prosperity that we have compared to to so many other places and most of all father the uh, the blood of your son as we continue to stumble along life's way that that blood continues to cleanse us and as your son said i'll remember your sins no more we're thankful for all those that have been involved in in preparing and executing this vbs and we're thankful for for all those that uh, that contribute in this congregation and all the great work that we do. And we ask you continue to bless us. We ask this in your son's name. Amen.